All right, so we're returning to our cultural series, uh, and this uh, part of the culture sermon series is on education, uh, and it's entitled Education, the Factory versus the Art Studio. So we in the past have viewed how does our culture determine and view certain aspects of life, and then how does heaven view them, and getting the perspective right on all of that. So we're going to begin with Acts chapter 17. Verse 11. Acts 17, verse 11. It says, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away, this is verse 10, I'm sorry, by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. They were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. This is the Bereans, which some of us have, may have heard before. They were prized by Paul because they would not just receive the teachings of the apostles, and so they searched the scriptures themselves, and so they studied for themselves to see if what Paul and the apostles were saying were true or if it was hogwash. And they pursued the scriptures and they said, yeah, the scriptures are for telling what you are saying is true. And they follow. Okay? So the Bereans, they went and they studied the scriptures to find out what the apostles were saying were true or not. Okay. So we're going to start with a question. What is the first word or emotion you think or feel when you see the following picture, before we go there, say it again. The first thought or emotion that you feel or think when you see the next picture, like it's got to be like the first thing that goes in your mind, and I'll just, we'll get a couple of uh, people to participate. Ready? Go. All right, so let's get some hands and let's get some things going here. Yeah. Peer pressure, high school peer pressure. Very good. Sadness. Sadness. Whoa, we got one excitement. Whoa. Bullying. Bullying. Wow. Anyone else? Sharon. Knowledge. Knowledge. Okay, Annabelle. Challenge. Challenge. Okay. Oh, okay. You can say it again so we can replicate it for power. Dread. Yeah, dread. Tiring, fatigue. Yeah. Uniformity. Happiness. Yeah. Um. Interesting that you 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 qualify that with elementary school. I, I would say the same thing. Elementary school, there's excitement, there's energy, there's creativity, there's fun. Now, I teach high school. Jonathan, can you believe it? I got this off of Google. Those are the exact desks at our school. Like, that's the exact model. Jonathan, what do you think of when you see a picture like that? You don't know? All right, we'll see it Monday morning. All right, well, here, here we go. If we go to, go to the next slide, uh, what, what I'm doing here is this. 
What we have here is education can be viewed as a factory system or an art studio. And uh, we have to understand this so we can understand how the Lord has chosen to educate his people. I think if you have a mentality of dread, fatigue, tire, uh, being tired, you probably had an educational experience like most of us that are based off of a factory model. Now this is the reality. I'm not making this stuff up. Um, the, the school system, public school was created about 150 years ago. Compulsory education between the ages of 6 and 16. After the age of 16, you can get your parent to sign a document that says that you can be released from it. Uh, it was created, yes, I've studied this inside and out. Cre it was created uh, to essentially create workers for the factory. Obedient workers for the factory. Now, if you, if you understand that, you can then take a look at what we do in school. Not so much in elementary school, but more in the high school experience. We're really getting them ready to work. Because in elementary school, it's creative, it's fun, it's chaotic, it's the way it really should be. But by the time we get to high school, things are ordered because we have to speed things up to get you ready for the factory. Okay? If you take a look at the architectural uh, design journals, the same people who design schools, yes, are the same companies and architects that designed jails. Wow. Many schools are cinder block, not many windows, narrow halls, compartmentalized so we can have control. You go where you go for 40 minutes, 55 minutes, and a bell is rung, and you now need to go to the next place. It is patented off of the shift at a factory. In fact, uh, there's so much power in it that, uh, well, you know, you have about a 25 to 30 minute lunch. That would be, I guess, somewhat appropriate for the factory. Just get them fed real quick and rush them back. Uh, in fact, a uh, most unbelievable thing, the bill's basic biological function, having to use the restroom, you need to ask middle management. You need to ask the teacher if you're even allowed to go to the bathroom. Now, we need to train people who obey, who listen, who do not question, who are willing to work in the factory experience, and even will dare ask in a superior if they're allowed to use the bathroom. This is all designed because 150 years ago, America was built off of the factory. And we need good, obedient workers that will fulfill that role. Whoa. Next, uh, next slide, please. Jonathan, you cannot answer this. Education is dangerous. It is enough if the people can read simple directions and count to 100. Every educated person is a true enemy. Have I ever used that quote in here before? I thought I did, but I called up Mario and he said no. So I was like, all right, Mario's got an unbelievable memory. All right, well, if, you, you know, if you're not really... Ah, I should have called. Okay, well, it's fine because everyone else is like, oh, this is a cool quote. I've never heard it before. That's good. Repetition is good. Kevin? Is that a hand or? Yeah. Okay. All right, Joy. Yeah, next slide. Now you remember. Adolf Hitler, 1939. Look, this is the way that tyrants come to power. You're not going to hear this too often from too many churches, so plug in. This is the way that tyrants come to power, either in government or in the church. I'll say it again. This is how tyrants come to power, whether in government or in the church. 
Education is dangerous. Educated people, people that know the word, people that know their craft, their career, they're dangerous. Now, a dictator like Adolf Hitler wants this type of mentality because, look, if you are, well, just smart enough to follow and obey certain directions, but not smart enough and intelligent enough or creative enough to ask questions, the dictator could use your output as a factory worker, uh, but you will not rise up and ask questions to go up against them. Okay? Yes? George Cohen says, smart enough to turn the gears of a clock, but not smart enough to know the design. All right, there you go. George Cohen, the witty one. So that's the answer to it all. Adolf Hitler uh, it, it, it believes this and is going to bring this forth into Germany, okay? And a lot of this is just based off of this factory mentality. But if we go to the next slide, uh, what we have here is I really do believe education is supposed to be likened unto an art studio. The public school, and for us, the church, is not meant to be a factory. Uh, but in fact, an art studio, a place to create, a place to engage, a place to think, a place to tinker, a place to do. The unfortunate reality here is school is this way. And I'm just going to be real with you. I think a lot of the church is this way as well. We've become obedient workers who are just spiritual enough to follow along, but not spiritual enough and haven't been plugged in enough to engage the scriptures like the Bereans and to engage the Lord like the Bereans. God wants us to create. God created the heavens and the earth and we are to replicate some of that here on earth. Uh, Psalms 115.6 says, For the heavens are the Lord's, but to earth he gave unto man. He has given us his planet to steward it, to go forth and proclaim the gospel. Um, the end result is, is not the greatest in the book of Revelation, but the final end is great. The Lord comes and inhabits the earth. But we are called to right, be the hands and feet of the Lord. Um, and that's more of a representation of being artists. So we know that the Lord has called us to be priests, but I would like to kind of run off of this a little bit and Say, I think the Lord wants us actually to be artistic priests. What I mean by artistic priests, I mean priests, sons or daughters who are willing to create, who are willing to engage, who are willing to do things for the gospel and not just sit here and sit in our churches across the world and just receive from the factory system, sitting in our desks, writing down what the teacher is saying and just kind of moving on. I think that's really the education of heaven. So how does this all happen? Because as um, Carl, right? Is it, I'm sorry, Mr. Matthias. Matthias, is Carl? Carl, that's what I thought of Carl. Uh, Clark, I'm sorry. My apologies. Clark, I knew it was a C and an L. Ah, sorry. Clark. Um, what, what we have here is, uh, you know, as he was saying, this, this notion of in elementary school, there's the excitement and the happiness and the, the, the energy that is there. Uh, and, and then what happens here, something begins to happen to us when we go through school. I'm using public school as a representation of, of the church, okay? And so if we go to the next slide, here is a, 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 a major educational thinker right now. His name is Sir Ken Robinson. Sir, because he's been knighted, okay, by the queen. 
He says, we do not grow into creativity, we grow out of it, or rather, we get educated out of it. So you take a little kid, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, seven, eight, nine, ten, there's so much creativity. I mean, they're asking why, they're doing all this unbelievable stuff. It's kind of like when you first get saved. What's going on? You're trying to figure everything out. It's so exciting. There's so much energy and so much innovation. And it's like, this is unbelievable. It's great. And then, for many of us, in school, something is removed from us. And I think this may actually happen to many of us in our church experience. It's not that you have to learn about creativity. We have to get creativity back again. This model, yes, that we're doing right now, less so than other places, but still, this model that we are doing right now removes creativity. I'm the person that speaks to you. Some of you write things down, some of you won't. You'll listen to some things, you'll go throughout the week and we'll do our things, but essentially this the modern church is not too far away from a, a public school. It really isn't. Um, so what happens here is the creativity and the beauty that the Lord has given us by creating us with as free will beings, with innovation and thoughts and excitement and passion and all this kind of stuff, sometimes comes out is removed and that needs to be corrected amen all right so we'll go to the next slide let's try to make this hopefully make a little bit more sense if you take a look at the top lecture versus what's called constructivism uh, it's two different types of pedagogy two different types of teaching most of us in our high school experience remember the lecture he's up there we call it chalk talk up there with the chalk and they're just talking talking you take your notes and you do your thing Constructivism is learning by doing. That's a little bit more like apprenticeship, where you actually are involved in a process, you're doing it, you're learning as you go. It's the old apprentice type of mentality. But that's maybe seen in a tech school, but it's not seen in usual public schools. I'm going to argue here that I think largely the church has, in fact, adopted this more of a lecture philosophy. It comes from the Greeks and the Romans, uh, known as the philosopher king mentality. Prior to Judaism slash Christianity coming to the Greeks and the Romans, they actually would have philosophers that would go around the empire, come into town. You would pay them. They would go into a community hall. The people would sit and listen to them. They would get paid, not preaching the gospel, but preaching philosophy. They'd be, they would get money. Then they would go on to the next town. Or if the people really liked them, they would say, can you just be the philosopher for the town? And every week, we'll come and listen to you. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. That's how the pastorate is essentially created in the westernized church. It's not how rabbis did things. It's not how the apostles did things. It's how the Greeks and the Romans did things. Yeah, it's heavy stuff. We're, we're, I, Look, I told you from the beginning, the culture series is going to be tough because it's going to force all of us to really question, why do we do what we do? And is there, in fact, a better way? There is more going on in the church that is taken from Greco-Roman philosophy than from first century Christianity. That's just a reality. And we continue to do it because we do not know another way. And I'm here to try to teach you another way. And it's the way of the art studio. It's the way of creation. It's the way of engaging one another in the Lord. So what's the philosopher king? The way it would work here is, yes, the Greco-Roman philosophers, which is also modern-day pastors, and the Catholic Church. 
You would be a paid scholar. That person would go to school, a seminary. They would learn a whole bunch of stuff, and then you would pay them to teach you. He is the man of God mentality, which is always freaks me out. I interact with some people like this. It scares me. It's the type of pastor who's like, oh, I've been to the mountaintop with God, and I know the answers, and now I'm coming down to you lesser mortals, and I'm going to tell you the ways of thy God. Kiss my ring. <laughs> By the way, my fingers are manicured. Not really, but that's that man of God. I'm just being real with you. And many of you have been in churches like that. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. We are all priests. Jeremiah 31 says, The day is coming, plus saith the Lord, that no man will have to teach another, because all will know me by the Spirit of God. I should be able to learn as much from you as you get to learn from me. That's what happens when you engage the body. Uh, you know, this person knows all the answers. So you go to them all the time instead of going to the throne room of God. Instead of going to the throne room of God first, you go to the pastor to ask questions. There's nothing wrong with that. You should be asking other brothers and sisters, plural, about what to do, but it should happen through also going to the Father and the Word yourself and looking to your brothers and sisters to give you guidance so you're not like being a complete whack job. Right? The philosopher king creates an atmosphere of you must listen and you must obey. You must obey what I am saying because I know what is right and you're paying me to tell you what is right and you should listen. And if you have a different opinion, well, leave the church. Uh, this unfortunately creates a very passive believer. A very, very passive, ineffectual believer who is a widget, a number, and a tithe check, and not a mover and shaker on planet Earth. This is what happens. It is one of the most unbelievable plans that the enemy has created in the Western church because most of the church is this. Most of the church is that way. Paul says, I have to do these things unto you again. You should be teachers by now, it says by Paul. Uh, now, a true pastor's heart which I try to guard myself on and try to create, is more of the constructivism approach. And that is someone who is, is preaching and creating opportunities for the people to engage. Engage the Holy Ghost, engage the Lord, but also engage one another. Engage one another in the community through ministry. It's not all me and my little panel of, of ministers. It's a pastor is creating opportunity for all brothers, all sisters, all those who call upon the name of Jesus to do something for the kingdom. That is the way it needs to be and it must be because that is the heart of the Father. Uh, it's a pastor's heart, which I believe is the heart of the Lord, is one who says, you know what, it's okay to make mistakes. As we were preaching last week, it's okay to make mistakes because mistakes and failure are not failures. They're an opportunity to learn. And we're going to come around you and we're going to encourage you and we're going to figure out what didn't work and what did work and learn from my examples. I learn from you. You learn from my mistakes. I learn from your mistakes. It's, that's how we grow as a body. Not, you know, you have to go to 15 training seminars in order to be able to do X. Okay? Uh, next is taking risks, but with love. Like, what I mean by taking risks is, like, stepping into new endeavors that you may not have always been able to do. Maybe it is giving a song. Hey, Pastor Dave, or Dave, you know, I know I'm not on the worship team, but 
you know what, this, heart, this song has been in my heart. I've been listening to it on YouTube all week. And could I just minister to the congregation uh, during, you know, right after worship or something? I'd be like, where have you been our whole life? That's awesome. That's what we want. Hey, the Lord's really been speaking to me this week about X, Y, and Z. Can I give a, a little testimonial at the church before we get going? And this is what it is and this is what's going on. Yes. 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 Yes, yes. Actually, that is what our goal is. That's our goal. Is to get you to do stuff like that. And we do it with love. Now, while you engage in this way, it creates a passion that will be formed. And so the result of all this is, look, a public school has brought a death to creativity. And in the church, we may in fact have the same thing, in my humble opinion. It is so... Uh, so much the antithesis of the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 is one of my favorites. Uh, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, that each of you have a song? Each of you have a teaching. Each of you has a tongue. Each has a revelation. Each of you has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. You know, everyone gets all bent out of shape, like, oh, speaking tongues, when do you do it, when do you not do it, oh my gosh, prophecy, all this kind of stuff, <gasps> what do we do, and how do we do it, and all this kind of craziness. But the reality here is the reason why there is this order here is because their church was all doing it, and they were all giving opportunities to be able to give a word, and it was like, well, you know what, everyone can't preach this week, so let's do it in an orderly fashion. How about you got that next week? Now, what has happened here is in our fear, to be orderly with spiritual gifts. And in our fear to be perfect in ministry, we've created an unfortunate circumstance and reality in the body. Let me go to the next slide. In our fear to be orderly and perfect, we have created the order of the cemetery instead of the order of the nursery. Both are ordered. Both are in form. One is death and one is life. In the cemetery, it's quiet. No one is doing anything. In the nursery, it's loud. And it's a little chaotic because everyone is doing something. One baby is screaming, another baby is crying, another baby is being fed. But in the nursery, there is life. Do not confuse order in the church or order in your life with silence. But many people in the church, we've become so afraid that we have to be perfect in what we do for the Lord. Or ministers have said, no, that is not in order. That it creates an atmosphere that is bringing forth not life. But Jesus is, is life, amen? So that's what we need to do, and that's what we need to create, because that is what the Father wants. And you look at those disciples. I mean, they're doing, I mean, they're so energetic that the Lord is like, whoa, calm down there, fellas, right? That's what we need to do. And I'm hoping that we get this in our DNA here at church that we'll begin to walk out on that. Yeah. Can I ask something? Sure. Um, I've been in small churches. I've been in very, very big churches. And like in big churches, they seem to have to have more order because some people have their own agenda. Sure. And it's a good question. So don't you think there's a balance with Absolutely, this? yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's a question that comes up a lot. Uh, there's a couple ways we, we can do that. For those that didn't hear, maybe for the tape, is, you know, uh, Joy's been in big churches, been in small churches, 
And, you know, sometimes in big churches, you have people with their own agendas. Uh, that also happens in small churches. It's happened uh, maybe once or twice here. Uh, and did you know about it? Yeah. See, that's the key. You have the elders, you have the ushers, you have the ministry team that if they believe something is off or something is happening inappropriately, that they need to be active practitioners and they need to go over to a brother and sister and say, you know what, now it may not be the time for you to share this word, et cetera, et cetera. That's one thing. Um, so you have to rely and have trust in who the Lord has appointed as your leaders. Uh, the ministry team is not just me, but it's other ministers here. It's uh, largely the board of elders. That if anything really got that crazy, we would, we would do something. It's only happened once or twice. And 99% of you didn't really know what happened. The second piece that I would put into this uh, is, you, can, you guys can talk to me more about it later. Because I know some of you don't necessarily agree. Uh, I honestly do believe that the church model that Jesus was bringing forth was not meant to be big. It's not meant to be big. Um, how, look, I'm one guy, and there's like 50 of you. And I'm, I have it difficult sometimes, like trying to like see how everyone is doing and all that kind of stuff. How, how can you do that with a 1,000? Well, if we have 10 pastors. All right, so 10 pastors each have 100? I mean, look, I mean, maybe if people are able to do things in a certain way, I just believe it's, it's the Lord's heart not to do that. I think... I think there's more of an experience we take a look at this more of engagement type of church mentality that it would have to be smaller and if it's smaller that means that pastors are relinquishing control and saying alright I don't have a church of a thousand maybe they're an apostle and they're overseeing a church 10 different churches of a hundred or 20 different churches of 50 uh, that's, that's my heart my heart I think that's a little bit better of, of what's going on in the New Testament uh, we see the conglomeration of large numbers when we start getting into that philosopher-king mentality of the Greco-Romans. Uh, that's the way that happened. In small little villages out in the Galilee, fishing communities, you know, they're meeting in homes. Uh, even in the, the Roman Empire, they're meeting in homes because they're being persecuted. You can't have a thousand people in a home. Um, you're going to have, you know, how do you have fellowship, eating and drinking all together in one accord, breaking bread? You can't do that with a thousand people. Um, so... I think, like I said, a lot of the Western church is coming out of a mentality of Greco-Roman thought opposed to the thought of Jesus. And so a lot of us will find success with growing a church to a certain size and look, now we're successful. I don't know if that's necessarily being successful. I think a true matter of success is you grow a church to a place where it's able to replicate. Yes. Not split, but replicate. Now how awesome would it be that in a couple months or in a couple of years... The place grows to 300 people, and we say, praise God, you know, Pastor Ramon and a ministry team, they're going to start the church, we'll see where everyone lives, and a whole bunch of people are coming from Levittown, and boom, we open up, you know, Bristol Hope Part 2 in Levittown, you know, or whatever. I think that's more of the heart of the Lord. Um, so that's a great question, a very good question. So, yes, we want to do things in an orderly way. We can do that better with reasonable... Numbers and us coming together as a family. Okay, uh, the next slide is this. It's a bit of a question, and I don't want you to answer it yet. I just want you to ponder it. If you were here on Wednesday, you can't answer. <laughs> Who is the greatest preacher in history? Dum dum dum. All right, top left. 
William Graham, also known as Billy, Billy Graham, uh, preaches to 3.5 million people throughout his life. 3.5 million people. He is the personal chaplain to every president since 1952, Dwight Eisenhower through, I believe, Bush, Bush II. Still alive, nine years old. Unbelievable. I think his net worth is about $25 million. John Wesley, top right. The man helped start worldwide revival through the Great Awakening. He preaches in his lifetime 40,000 sermons. He gave away $100,000 of his own personal money. Not his ministry's money, but his own personal money. He traveled a quarter of a million miles in the preaching of the gospel on horseback. Uh, in his later years, he was upset and sad because his body was starting to break down that he could only wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning for prayer. He used to get up at like 3 or 4, and his body was getting, he was getting a little older. And he's like, oh, my one thing I regret, Lord, if you could just give me the strength to be able to wake up earlier than 5 to be with you. Woo! That's John Wesley, right? The founder of the Methodist Church. One of my personal favorites, bottom left, Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers. Fellow pastors call him in his day and also now the Prince of Preachers. 300 million copies of his sermons are in print today. 300 million copies. Preaches to 10 million people worldwide. Openly, this is really phenomenal, openly discusses his chronic depression and bodily ailments. From the pulpit, he's like, I, I, I go through depression. I'm being real. I go through these things and I'm dealing with them, but it will not stop the spreading of the gospel. Wow. He also smoked a cigar a day. Just saying. Bill Johnson, uh, Bethel Church, I think he and his ministry has had one of the largest impacts on modern, uh, the modern uh, culture of the church through worship and through teachings. Um, at one point, uh, tens of thousands of people each year come to their church. Like, they fly there. He doesn't have to fly places. Like, people fly there. Uh, and, and at one point, I read that uh, they were uh, test, uh, at an active testimony that uh, within 15 miles of the church, there was a 15-mile radius of the church that was cancer-free. Like, 15 miles around the church, you couldn't find any cases of cancer. Okay? So, who is the greatest preacher of all time? Paul? We got one for Paul? Jonathan Edwards? Okay. I like Jonathan Edwards. He's good. The Whoever's most popular on TV. Okay, well, you guys are taking this a different way. I'm going to have to side with Sharon here and say a Jewish carpenter. A Jewish carpenter by the name of Jesus. I'm going to say he's the greatest preacher. He only had a three and a half year ministry. He preached to maybe a little over 10,000 people. He had 120 devout followers, but at the end of his uh, ministry, he was down to 12. Oh, let me correct that. Maybe down to 10. Judas 
left. Peter's deny him at the end, although Peter was faithful. Man, not a lot, but obviously a major, major preacher and teacher. And we're going to say, well, yeah, he is so amazing because he's God incarnate. I got it. Uh, he's so amazing because he preaches through the Holy Spirit. Got it. He's so amazing because he preaches with authority. I got it. It's so amazing because he preaches and there are miracles. I got it. But there's still something else that makes him such a great preacher. And so we have to take a look briefly how, in fact, he taught in closing up today. We can go ahead and get that worship team going. Next slide, please. How did te Jesus teach? We're going to just move on because it's getting a little later today. But, but thank you for the, the questions. We'll rock it out after service if you have some. Um, Jesus. How did Jesus teach? Because I'm making the argument that he is the greatest preacher, even greater than Charles Spurgeon. Maybe not by pure numbers at time, but obviously his, his, his teachings have survived the test of 2,000 years. Well, when we take a look at this, it, it's kind of disturbing, because I would be quite honest, if I taught the way that Jesus taught, I probably would not be invited next week. I probably would not be a pastor here if I chose to teach like Jesus taught. Which just brings us back to the understanding of philosopher king versus a pastor's heart. Which one are you looking for? Many of us are looking for the philosopher king who has the PhD and who can dictate all these commentaries. But Jesus did not have the PhD. Jesus taught in a very, very interesting way. One, he told stories, but the frustration here is a lot of the stories, people simply could not understand them. And sometimes he explained the stories, and sometimes he didn't explain the stories. A lot of times he raises a story, and people say, what do you mean, Jesus? And in Matthew chapter eleven fifteen, he says something like this. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Yes. Pastor Dave, I don't understand the meaning of this scripture. He who has ears, let him hear. But this guy is not telling me what it is. That's right, he's not. He who has ears, let him hear. He shocked people. I mean really shocked people. Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. To the rich, wise ruler, I have done so much for God, for the Father. What else do I need to do? He says, go and sell everything. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then you can follow me. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If you really love me, the only one who can love me are those who hate their mother and hate their father. They can follow me. Now, we have 2,000 years of commentary. Well, you see, what is meant here is that go and sell everything, is that the rich, wise man, money had a hold over his heart, and he had to let that go in order for him to truly be free and be able to follow Jesus. Amen, I get it. I, you don't really hate your mother or father. It just means that if the Lord is asking you to do something and your parents are disagreeing, Jesus is Lord, not your parents. I get it. But that's 2,000 years of commentary. And I believe it was the heart of Jesus, that explanation. But notice, in the scriptures, he does not give that explanation. You have to figure it out. There's no Matthew Henry commentary on what did Jesus just say in the year 30. 
Jesus also does not convince. Matthew 8.20 in, in colloquial English. You don't really want to follow me. Foxes have a place to sleep and lay their head, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Luke 9, verse 23. If you want to follow me, deny yourself. Pick up your cross and then you can follow me. Well, what does that mean, Jesus? He doesn't tell you. Now, we look at the cross as this beautiful symbol of Christianity. But at the time before the death and resurrection, what was the cross? When you say pick up your cross, he's not talking about picking up your symbolic cross. What he was saying, or at least the way people were interpreting, he's like, why is he talking about a cross? What is a cross 2,000 years ago? It is a means of execution. It is a modern-day electric chair. It is a modern-day lethal injection. If you want to follow me, you have to be willing to die. Now, you may say, well, he really means symbolically, spiritually die. I get it. But he does not say that there. See, this is the hard part. What makes him the greatest teacher? He did not spoon feed you the answers. What makes him the greatest preacher? He says, you can have relationship with me, but that's not enough. You need to have fellowship with me. I have relationship with my earthly dad. He is my dad and I am his son. That is the relationship. But there needs to be more than a relationship. There needs to be a fellowship. You can call upon the name of Jesus. You can call him your savior and that is your relationship. But in order to truly grow in the education of heaven, you must engage in fellowship with him. And to the best of my knowledge, Spurgeon isn't saying you have to have fellowship with me, Charles Spurgeon. Billy Graham isn't saying have fellowship with me, Billy Graham. What, what I'm hoping they're saying in their sermons and what the sermon is going on today is that to be engaged with the Lord, to truly have education, you need to engage him. And that's what makes him the greatest preacher. I'm not going to give you all of the answers. You can give a man a fish and he'll eat for a day. You can train a man out of fish and he'll eat for a lifetime. I'm not going to just give you the answer now, my beloved. I'm going to teach you that you get to come to me. You get to sit at my feet and learn the answers. Engage me. Engage fellowship with me. And that's how we come to the answer. That is the education of an art student. And it's probably because Jesus wasn't a scholar. He was a man that worked with his hands. He understood the only way to learn is to learn by doing. That's why he did not go to the rabbis and he went to fishermen. You fish with your hands. You learn by your hands. You learn by doing. You need to engage the environment. You need to engage your master. You need to be the apprentice and learn from the feet of Jesus. But too often, we rather just listen to a powerful speaker instead of going to the feet of Jesus. You have to go to the feet of Jesus if you want to be a disciple. You have to go to the feet of Jesus to have fellowship with him. Amen? It's the only way. Come on, let's be real. Next week, I'll give you a quiz on what was said today. 80% of you are not going to. You're not going to remember. You're not going to remember. All right, maybe 70% won't remember. Why? Because right now there's limited engagement. 
You need to walk it out. You need to engage the material in order to learn. It's the only way you learn. It's the only way man learns because we were created as beings for relationship and fellowship. It's the only way you're going to learn. So in the midst of a culture of education that wants to reduce factory workers, blind, obedient workers that just listen to their boss and ask their teacher if they can use potty and ask their pastor if they're allowed to pray for the sick or something like that. Yes, go pray for the sick. Hmm. In a culture that teaches education that way, be different. Engage the Lord. And in closing, go to the next slide. Once you see it, raise your hand. Once you see it, raise your hand. Praise God for those people who refuse to be educated by the factory. August Landmesser, German citizen, 1936, Munich. Next slide, please. In a crowd of obedient factory workers, listening to the Fuhrer, the Hitler, the leader speak, everyone is giving a Sikh Heil to Hitler. 1936, August Lenmesser, who is a German man who is married to a Jewish woman. They have a child. He listens to the rhetoric of Hitler and he says, no, not me. No obedience to Hitler in the midst of crowds of people. In the midst of, can you imagine the pressure, the social pressure to conform when tens of thousands of people are in Munich and Hitler comes to speak and everyone, see Kyle, see Kyle, see Kyle, and one man folds his arms and says, this is ridiculous. That is what we need to be. People who look at the ridiculousness of the education of life and in the education of church. That says, just sit here, put a smile on, just listen, don't cause any, any questions, things like that. Put an end to that. Be this guy. Be this guy in a world that just listens to consumerism, that just listens to the rhetoric of politicians, that just listens to preachers on TV and all this kind of stuff. It's not that the preachers on TV are necessarily bad. But you got to be someone like the Bereans that says, I am going to find these things out for myself. You need to live out the warning that Paul gives forth to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study and show yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed rightfully dividing the word of truth. Study. Engage the Lord. Minister at His feet. And be educated, not by man, but the Son of Man. The Spirit of God. Because that's what it means to be a son or daughter of God, to be a part of the bride. You want to learn? You want to change the world? You need to engage Him. You need to get out of the lecture hall and then you put yourself in the art studio and you need to tinker and you need to cut the 
cut the frame too short and you need to pick the wrong color paint so you can fix things and trial by error and you gotta do all of these interactive beautiful things so you grow into the destiny that you've called you to. Amen? Alright, let's stand. If you're okay, you can be that guy too and sit if you want. Father, we just come before you and we thank you that you have desired to create people to follow you that are not philosopher kings, but are people who can be molded into the image of Messiah. Father, we thank you that you want us not just to be obedient workers in your kingdom, but you want us to engage you into the expression of your love in your heart. We thank you, Lord, that that's what you've called us to, that we are all equal. That the ministers are not higher than the layman. That there's no layman in the kingdom. That we're all ministers of the gospel. We're all priests. We all have the ability to minister your heart and to learn from your throne room. And Lord, I pray this week. I pray this week that this congregation, that the people here would have a desire to step into the art studio. They'd have a desire to step into the throne room of God. They'd have a desire to read your word and learn from you. They'd have a desire to sit at your feet and worship you and to just even be still in your presence and to hear words from you. And if they're confused or they need some guidance, well, then, then they'll go to another brother. Then they'll go to another sister and say, hey, what do you think about it? Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Oh, he's so good. He believes so much in you that he's called you to be his disciple. To be his disciple. To walk out what he did on earth. Not just those that have seminary degrees, but those that just... Have the degree of heaven. A diploma that says, Son, daughter of the Most High God. If you feel in your heart that you would like to pray for people, come on down and you can pray for those people that just want some ministering. And if you want to be ministered to, just come on down and we'll, we'll pray for you and because that's how the family does things. Please feel free to stay in the presence or go downstairs or leave, whatever you got to do, but we do have some fellowship time. Have a wonderful week. Hmm. Step into the art studio this week. Amen. <laughs>